This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Got internet? Well, that's what the latest survey from a local nonprofit wants to know. How's your connectivity if you live in the country? HBR's Ku'ube Hirishi joins us to talk about broadband connectivity in rural communities. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. That's right. A statewide broadband mapping initiative is underway in rural communities on, on the neighbor islands, which sort of aims to give us that snapshot of, of what internet connectivity looks like uh, across the islands. Everyone throughout the pandemic has experienced this personal I'm sure lagging um, load times or slow internet, if at all, and trying to figure out how to do the student, you know, distance learning, try to do the remote work with that internet connection. And so a Brad Kaleo Bennett, uh, who started the Awamo Collaborative, a big island nonprofit that's kind of taken on this task of mapping out internet connectivity. Uh, he says essentially it, it grew out of uh, another initiative uh, led by educators on the big island. So we covered this in the, in the past, the Kuaoli Digital Opportunities Initiative, and they were going out uh, delivering digital devices, so hardware, right, refurbished desktops to students in need who were at the time only uh, available to get their schooling online. But when they were giving out these, you know, when they were uh, handing out hardware, they figured out that some of these families didn't even have the internet access to get to the classes or to get um, whatever services they needed online. And so when they went out to look for maps of, you know, where else might we need to look, what communities are underserved, they realized there that the maps that were available weren't accurate at all. And it wasn't sort of boots on the ground data, as Bennett put it. A lot of it was sort of um, <clears throat> at the zip code level. So for areas, I give Hilo as an example, 96720 covers a huge swath of land. Um, so, But there's there are pockets in there where you cannot get internet and folks in those communities know it. So Bennett's collaborative aims to have uh, higher community liaisons to actually go out and do speed tests in the field, figure out what the upload times are and the download times and and attach that to a new map that will hopefully give us a clearer picture. Um, and uh, we were talking about this earlier that service providers you would think would have um, these maps sort of on lockdown. That's their service. It's what they do. But a lot of that information is proprietary and something that they do not share with the public. And so when it comes to groups like the Awamo Collaborative trying to get money to to um, serve underserved communities, they don't know where they are. So it starts with with this mapping. Um, but they're also doing the online survey, as you mentioned, uh, where they want to know, you know, what do you use the internet for in your particular uh, community? What uh, trouble might you have with it? How is the internet connection? And Bennett says, you know, the pandemic helped revive the conversation surrounding Internet connectivity and really the idea of digital equity, right, of ensuring everyone has access to digital opportunities, whether it be economic, educational or even telehealth, which right. uh, under the pandemic has been huge. Uh, here's Bennett. I think looking at the, the concept of equity, right, it's not just an economic issue. It's not just an issue of education. It's really a social justice issue. It's really who has access and who doesn't. What we hope is by doing this work and finding out where the holes are, going on and talking to people about it, it raises awareness about the fact that, you know, there are holes. Well, while we would love to blame the pandemic for everything, uh, you know, the pandemic didn't create the situation, but it really exposed it. So now that we know it exists, now it's time to find a solution for it. So that's what we're working towards. And it could not have been a, a better time, right? We've just passed, uh, Congress just passed the $1 trillion infrastructure bill, which includes $160 million for broadband infrastructure. So if it is for some of these communities, just a, pro a broadband uh, infrastructure issue where service providers are not yet there in the communities, then maybe uh, this money or this map could help kind of get some of that money for these communities. Yeah, and you know we have done stories uh, with, let's say, the DOT putting in mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, synchronized lights or whatever in, in on their highways, and I I believe you know on the Big Island there yep. they they have done uh, some great work so that there is some connectivity and and whether it's telehealth or banking that the folks in Kau don't have to drive two hours just to you know to get you know 
where they need to to see the doctor or right, to do right right you know. and we've seen other uh, community network community broadband networks pop up for example uh, at Pu'uhonua Owe Manalo Bambikanahele creating their own network that they can control and then distribute um, internet service that is something that Bennett is looking at for other uh, more isolated communities like Milolii on the Big Island and Kipahulu uh, on Maui so we shall see what this map helps us uh, do moving forward yeah and and I know that there was that effort by Sandwich Isles to try and get um, you know internet service to some of these remote areas across the state and you know there were some hiccups along the way and I think that's still working its way through right courts. the infrastructure is there it's a matter of who's going to control that the Hawaiian Telecom has taken a lot of that on uh, the money will definitely help but again that mapping without knowing where to put this infrastructure we won't know yeah. how to help them important data that we need <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but thanks so much Kuvei. Mahalo. we have been talking to HBR's Kuvei Rishi about the latest on a statewide broadband mapping initiative underway you can read her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org Support for HPR comes from Kahala Hotel and Resort, celebrating Thanksgiving. Chef Mizukami's to-go meal features fresh turkey and sides, including his family's recipe, Portuguese stuffing. Orders through November 19th at kahalaresort.com. Special Agent Joe Wallace led the investigation into the death of 17-year-old football star Billy Joe Johnson. I will always remember that case. What we shared with him makes him question how the case turned out. If somebody had told me that and would have said, hey, we need to reopen this case, we need to look at this. On the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. Effects of the pandemic continue to reveal all the little but important things in life that we've come to take for granted, like being able to use the restroom at a restaurant or a store. HBR contributor Neil Milner joins us for his biweekly segment, The Long View, to talk about some of the lessons we've learned from the pandemic and perhaps answer the question we've all been wondering across the country. Where'd all the public bathrooms go? <laughs> well, hi, Catherine. We'll get to that in a second. The quick answer to that question, and one we'll explore it, is that the United States is notoriously low on the number of public bathrooms that it has compared to other countries. But it takes a while before we get to what that means. But I, I was intrigued by two articles recently in uh, City Lab. One was about this whole notion of care and what the, what the pandemic taught us about care and important things that we were taking for granted that disappeared. And then we'll talk about the public uh, toilets, lavatories, because it's related to that. Um, there's a there's a movement in this country that's been around for a while to build constructions, to build buildings, and to have agencies that are more concerned with looking at the idea of care self-consciously. So someone has proposed in New York, for example, a department of care. It's kind of a catch-all, but a lot of it is based on what we saw kind of fall apart in the pandemic. Uh, what do you do when sanitation isn't as good on the streets because workers are out? What do you do when you lack child care? And so this would be an agency. It's just proposed, and it's sort of fuzzy. But the idea is there's a lot of things that need to be coordinated and that people want to deal with in everyday life that they don't really have much help with. For example, if you have a problem with a bureaucracy or you want to know something about sanitation, you want a permit, you would have a Department of Caring. Where this gets manifested, Manifested the most is in child care and in uh, dealing with the elderly, where care is much more explicit, where you develop sometimes literally buildings, sometimes reconstructions of buildings on the basis of asking people what they need and what their needs are. So you build or you develop cooperative apartments or cooperative living spaces that share some kind of availability of opportunities to care for your children. To be more concrete, for example, 
you, if you live with a group of people in an apartment building and have kids, why not have some kind of common area that people could see out the window to see what their children doing, as well as maybe a place for caregivers to actually live. Yeah, Same, keep an eye on yeah, them. Yeah, keep an eye on them. Keeping an eye on them is a really important part in any kind of crisis situation like the pandemic. We know that. Social infrastructure, getting people to be able to see what others are doing. I don't mean in a surveillance sense, in a bad way. So there is this kind of movement in that direction to the, the sensitivity. The, the public lavatories one is a pretty concrete manifestation of, of those sorts of problems that come down to what you said. In, in this day and age, when you're on the streets, um, it, it, it is, now it's better, it was much harder to find a place to, to use lavatories because our lavatories tend to be privatized for the most part. We don't have public uh, lavatories all over the place. They're in, they tend to be in private buildings and restaurants. And if you don't have those available, you know. If you've ever been a tourist on an American street, you know that that's a problem. You have to go into another building. If you can't get into another building, then it's closed. And if you're homeless, that's a constant problem all the time. So this is a very interesting piece about the evolution of public or the non-evolution of public bathrooms and how it reflects certain kind of values. Well, you know, like just with the pandemic, I mean, obviously hygiene is big, right? Sure. And, uh, uh, you know, so yeah, if you don't have a place to wash your hands or, uh, for example, like the, the water fountains, you know, you need to drink water and those are all like taped up. You can't use them. That's right. And in, if you're a hotel that isn't officially open to the public to use their bathrooms, but you know it's possible you have a you have a hygiene problem during the pandemic of keeping it quiet. So if you if you imagine yourself on on urban space in say in Honolulu, and you're on the streets all the time, and the homeless, of course, is the best example, and we use bathrooms as a sort of scarce resource that we don't necessarily want to make available to people on the street. You see what the problem is. And so it's, it's a very interesting history because we've always used them to reflect our values. You know, there were separate bathrooms in the South because of racism and, and segregation. There were um, people moved toward the progressive movement, moved toward public bathrooms and, and along with the temperance movement because they thought it was a way to keep people out of bars. <laughs> if you, you know, you, so they, they were thinking of, I mean, you can just imagine them thinking of an immigrant blue-collar worker going into a bar, drinking a lot of beer, getting into a fight when we can have it. Constructing them for women was very interesting because at first they weren't constructed very well at all. And then you move to more high-tech stuff. But the bottom line is that they've never been that available on the streets, it's always, almost always, in most situations, requires you to go into a restaurant, into a department store, into a hotel, or behind the bush. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I just know as a kid, uh, you know, traveling, when you go to different countries, I was just always intrigued how different the bathrooms were, whether it's a, an airport bathroom. <laughs> I just remember I was mesmerized by one that actually changed the, had, had uh, seat covers on there automatically. And I was like, wow. You know, and then in Europe, you've got ones that wash the whole room down. Yes. Well, Paris is a good example. You have those high-tech ones that wash the, the room down that have never really caught on in the United States. In fact, uh, I think that New York City owns a bunch of them that they've never installed. So if you go to one part of Paris, you can use those. They're, they're clean, efficient, they're high-tech, they do all kinds of stuff to protect themselves. If you go to the famous cemetery in Paris, you're essentially using the old glorified hole in the ground with the with the armrest so but but it it's it's a serious subject because again it's about how we think about care and what we see as our values and so gosh i mean you know so these are lessons that uh, you know we've learned the pandemic it's like we need more of them <laughs> well i think we need more of them i think we also and and that's that's not easy because of of our ambivalence toward it we need more of them, and, and like a lot of other stuff that happened in the in the pandemic, we have to understand how the pandemic really uh, highlighted more inequalities. That you keep finding little stuff that turns into big stuff, 
that people with less money or the, with less house uh, suffer more than others. And so it isn't just, it's not just a place to go to the bathroom. It's a reflection of how we think about ourselves and our society. Well, I wonder if uh, somehow some of that money in the infrastructure bill can be used. You know, that's an interesting question. I imagine that it's possible, but I, you know, I think it's, it would be a really interesting question if you put one of those high-tech ones in Chinatown. You know, mm-hmm. Chinatown is a real clash of all these kinds of values where, in effect, you have people on the streets that, that cause sanitation issues because of bathroom issues. At the same time, you have people down there who don't necessarily want to create a bathroom that's an incentive, and then there's money involved. But I think to, that... I always ask people when they complain about the homeless and I uh, to say, where exactly would you go to the bathroom if you didn't have a home? Yeah, yeah. Well, lots to think about. But thank you, Neil. You're welcome. Take care. (laughs) All right. We've been talking with our political analyst, Neil Milner. He joins us every other week for a segment that we call The Long View. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hana Hauoli School, accepting junior kindergarten and grades 1 through 6 online applications for the 2022-23 school year through December 1st. hanahaoli.org slash aikomomai. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we catch up with the Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response Systems, or PAN-STARS, on Haleakala. With support from NASA, we'll find out how PAN-STARRS is tracking and mapping asteroids to keep the Earth safe from potential collisions. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a selection of gifts, publications, and handcrafted goods at the Homa Shop. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions, also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. on the Honolulu Rail Project has once again hit a roadblock. This time it's a lack of skilled welders that is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri on the line today. Good morning. Hey, morning, Catherine. So, roadblock, speed bump, whatever it is, it's slow going. Right. So the story we have we have up today is basically the latest in Hart's ongoing wheel track interface problems uh, that maybe some of the listeners out there are somewhat familiar with. Basically, they, uh, you know, erected and installed the, uh, the elevated tracks and they started running the trains and they found late last year that there was too much wear and tear, you know, years before the system has even started running. And they, they determined that that's because the wheels are too narrow as they run through these uh, track crossing parts uh, that are also called frogs and that's a big problem they need to to fix it because there are potential safety issues there and they certainly weren't able to run the trains as fast as they needed to go uh, if you're going to have a a serviceable system for passengers Uh, so that's kind of the background all of this the update is that they had um, an independent industry railroad expert uh, TTCI and uh, they were they've been studying this issue for uh, within the, the past year or so their report is finally out and there's good news in that report which basically says that that heart does not have to remove the entire segments the entire track crossings or frogs uh, they can solve the problem 
uh, with a way that's that's probably quicker and less expensive in uh, swapping out the, the wheels for wider wheels that fit properly. Uh, but they also have to make these welding uh, changes, modifications to those track crossings. They have to install so-called weld guards, which, as I understand it, will basically like narrow the gap uh, between the, the wheels that are too narrow. Uh, but it'll also still accommodate the the eventual wider wheels as they're subbed in. So that's the good news that you know Hart can can do that. Uh, the problem is that Hart has been unable to find licensed welders that can perform this work, and so that uh, there, there's no real indication on when Hart might actually get these skilled welders on island, and so that raises more questions as far as delays towards the interim service to Aloha Stadium. So you can't just get any old welder off the street. It's kind of specialized stuff. Right. This is this is new, highly specialized stuff. And remember, this is Honolulu and Oahu's first, you know, major modern uh, uh, rail transit system, you know. So uh, there aren't people on island that have this kind of work. And one thing that came up at a, uh, a rail board committee meeting yesterday is that they are going to need those welders going forward for regular O&M, not just to fix this current problem at hand. Yeah, well, I know we've, we've uh, seen stories about uh, West Oahu, you know, uh, trying to train uh, the technicians and the and the personnel that will need uh, to be able to operate this system, right? It's a driverless system, but you've got to have people that are going to know how to maintain it. Yeah, right, right. That's been a big part of this. They've they've really touted the the you know skills and training. Well, apparently this is something I don't I, I can't say for sure whether this fell through the cracks, but it's certainly something that has been you know uh, they've been alerted to, and it, it's on their radar now that they need this kind of specialized welding. Um, this this work was based on Hart's schedule was supposed to be done by mid November, which is basically now. So that's <laughs> not going to happen. And yeah, so it's just a big giant to be determined when they get it done, uh, and that that could impact interim service, which now is supposed to be mid twenty twenty two at some point, and that's that's been gradually pushed back as as people might recall. Yeah. So at least the good news is there is uh there's been a determination that there is a fix that's possible, but we just uh, need to make sure that we can get the workers to do that work. That's right. That's what Hart's working on right now. Yeah. I was driving out to the west side and I, I happened to see them uh, doing a test run and uh, the train was moving awful slow. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's probably due to some of these these crossing issues that they've had. Well, now, uh, we they haven't figured out who's supposed to pay for this mistake, right? Or, or, or you know, the fact that yeah. these things don't fit. They are pushing those discussions until after they have this whole situation resolved. There is con- uh, language in Hitachi's contract uh, that, that, you know, very clean, plainly states that they need to, they're responsible for these things working properly. But I think it, you know, of course, they're going to get really into the weeds and it's going to get, you know, it's 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 going to be a very complicated conversation. There's no indication yet as to how much it would cost, whether that's Hitachi covering it or whether it's Hart and the taxpayers. Yeah. So fix it now. Worry about who pays later. It's it's the name of the game. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing that the whole the whole way, I think. Yeah. But thanks so yeah. much, Marcel. Sure thing. Thanks, Catherine. All right. That was reporter Marcel Honoré with today's reality check. To read his stories online, visit civilbeat.org. Hawaii's connection with the French dates back to early missionary days when French priests arrived on our shores. These days, there are strategic military and business interests that are increasing in the region. In the headlines, repairing damage over the Paris Climate Accord and a submarine deal between Australia and France that got torpedoed when Australia went with the U.S. instead. 
Frederick Young recently took over as Council General of France. He is based in San Francisco and covers the Pacific Northwest and the Pacific Islands. He arrived in the islands this weekend for a meet and greet ahead of Veterans Day, which is tomorrow. We sat down with him yesterday afternoon to talk about increasing efforts to strengthen ties in our region. I represent the ambassador of France here in the Pacific and the Pacific Northwest, and I came mostly to honor in his name veterans, uh, Nisei veterans, who uh, participated to the campaign of 1944 in France and who were awarded the Legion of Honor for their service uh, and uh, who contributed to the liberation of France. So it was uh, very important to us to pay tribute to them and so had the chance to, to bestow them with the Legion of Honor of France. Yes, and uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to go to Normandy and uh, visit those uh, historic cemeteries. Very solemn, but very powerful, that place, when you know what the Allies did. Absolutely, absolutely. And in this case, the Nice veterans actually landed on the, they did the uh, offensive of the Provence, uh, went up north, the, the, the Rhone River, and uh, uh, participated some, through some very heavy combat in the Vosges Mountains in the northeastern side of France, absolutely. And, you know, uh, this summer we saw, I believe it was the French Navy came to train with our military forces here. Yes. So, as you know, France is one of the closest neighbors of uh, the U.S. and of Hawaii. Um, we are locals in the Pacific, if I may say, with the, our presence in French Polynesia and New Caledonia. Uh, these are French territories with two million French citizens. And uh, obviously, uh, we are a Pacific nation uh, in this regard. And that's why our military is very present uh, here in the Pacific. And we do have uh, many uh, Navy, French Navy ships that do stopovers uh, in Hawaii and in uh, other uh, U.S. territories like Guam, for example. And so, yes, absolutely, we have a great cooperation with, uh, with, our, uh, with uh, our American counterparts. And I just met with, the, uh, with representatives of the uh, Pacific Fleet uh, here, in, uh, in actually, in Pearl Harbor. And uh, they uh, say the cooperation with uh, French counterparts is absolutely outstanding. So do you think we're going to see um, more training you know, in the in the years to come. Yes, absolutely. I think so. But you know, we've been through a, a period of crisis, uh, if I may say, in the past uh, weeks, um, with the announcement uh, by the U.S. of a submarine deal with Australia, which actually put an end to a previous submarine deal uh, between France and Australia. Um, and uh, this has uh, this was perceived as a, a great deception uh, uh, on the side of France, and therefore we had to engage in high-level uh, discussions. And uh, President uh, Biden and President Macron talked about this back in September, and they met to discuss this in Rome on October 29th, because uh, there was a need to really rebuild trust between these two old allies. You, li you know, we like to consider ourselves as the oldest allies. We fought alongside the U.S. for the independence of a country, and we were very disappointed by the by. Uh, by the submarine deal, which put an end to our deal. And so, therefore, there was a need to rebuild trust. And this is what, uh, what happened uh, on this meeting in Rome. And they agreed on some very specific measures to, you know, build trust in the future. Right. You've got to repair those relationships. Uh, no one likes to be surprised. No, know. absolutely. That's the, that was the one major part of the, of, this, uh, of the problem, which is this deal occurred without any further notice from the U.S. side towards us. And uh, uh, we were really taken by surprise. And this has commercial implications, implications, you know, for all the workers that were involved in that project and have been for the past years. But it also has strategic implications. Uh, this was uh, not only a commercial deal, it was also a strate strategic partnership. And so this needs to be repaired. And this happened without, uh, without notice. And this is why we, we need to rebuild trust with our U.S. Uh, partners. Uh, I understand that there is a, a pretty strong uh, French community uh, here in the islands. Absolutely, absolutely. We have uh, 700 uh, French citizens that are registered here in, in Hawaii and the Hawaii Islands, um, and probably twice or three times even more uh, uh, that are actually present. And uh, it's very important that uh, the consulate uh, also uh, reaches out and comes to them. Uh, we have uh, an outstanding honorary consul here, Guillaume Maman, uh, who is, you know, the day-to-day -day face of the French consulate uh, locally. But it's very important that as a consul general, I come to Hawaii uh, regularly to meet with this French community. Here uh, also, you know, their concerns, their challenges. 
uh, and that they contribute to, to uh, a good dialogue with this community. Yes, I mean, uh, we've had many of our guests come through, whether they be uh, researchers at the University of Hawaii Medical School or business people uh, and cultural uh, people as well. Uh, there, uh, I don't know if you know, but there is a, a halal that uh, started uh, in Paris, and after 20 years, 25 years, they are still going strong. So there's a lot of cultural exchange between France and uh, Hawaii. Absolutely. Uh, besides the military and political discussions that we just mentioned, allow me also to mention the business ties we have. French companies are actually the second foreign employer uh, for jobs here in Hawaii. So French companies are themselves very important for the, for the economy of, of Hawaii, uh, of the state of Hawaii. And beyond that, as you mentioned, we have a very strong cultural exchange changes. Uh, obviously, Honolulu, Waikiki, all these names mean a lot, uh, and surfing mean a lot, you know, to the, to the French. Uh, but besides that, we have this festival, which you, which you mentioned, which uh, occurs uh, every year, which allows, you know, Hawaiian culture to come all the way to France. W- what's the plan moving forward as far as strengthening some of these ties? So on the business and the cultural side, I think uh, with, you know, the lifting of the travel ban, and which is essential to resume you know, international travel, things will probably uh, increase again. And just a, a parenthesis, this is a great relief for all those French citizens uh, that were here, because for those who didn't have either cit- uh, US citizenship or uh, a green card, they were, not in, in, they were not in the capacity to go to France and come back here to Hawaii. So this created many difficult humanitarian situations. So the lifting of a travel ban is a very important thing that I really wanted to, to highlight. Um, I'm, I'm confident that business ties and cultural ties will, will increase now that we have a way forward on the political and strategic side between uh, President Macron and President Biden. I'm confident this will go forward uh, also. And again, France really wants to do the same that the U.S. is doing in reinforcing its presence in the Pacific uh, through, its ter- through its territories and through uh, its military presence, given the challenges that we face in this, in this geographical part of the world. And talk about the, the challenges with climate change. Absolutely. Well, the COP21, uh, mm-hmm. which was, you know, the, the first moment where nations came together to commit to uh, very clear uh, commitments to regarding climate change, was a, a French endeavor. And uh, what uh, is uh, occurring right now, COP26 in Glasgow, is, uh, I think, the follow-up and, and uh, the implementation of these objectives. And this is obviously a, a, a top priority for French diplomacy, for France in general. Just like Hawaii, we are facing uh, in uh, mainland France, but also in our overseas territories, we're facing all these challenges of climate change. And it is essential uh, that we abide by our commitments that we made. And this is why France and its European partners in general are, uh, you know, uh, uh, setting some very ambitious goals uh, for to reduce the amount of global warming that mm-hmm. we, uh, we will have to face. And it is essential that all international partners in Glasgow, as we're speaking, go down the same way. I know your trip here is very short, but uh, is this your first trip to the islands? So this is my first official trip to the islands, absolutely. And I hope there will be many more because <laughs> I cannot, I have to admit, uh, it is uh, very, uh, obviously very pleasant. And the, the, the local uh, actors, the French community, the business actors, everybody is uh, is absolutely fascinating. I'm hoping to, to, to be able to come back very soon again. Okay, well, we hope you return. Uh, but congratulations on the posting. And uh, we'll uh, have you back again. Thank you so much, Catherine. We've been hearing from French Consul General Frederick Young. Uh, Expect to see more emphasis on strengthening diplomatic relations here in the Pacific region.
This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. It's Manu Minute time, and you've probably been waiting for this one. It's our state bird, the nene. Our Hawaiian goose is heading into its breeding season, so officials are asking motorists to take special care when driving through its known breeding grounds, like the Volcanoes National Park. From Hawaii Island, here's University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart. Most of us know the nene, or Hawaiian goose, which is the state bird of Hawaii and found here and nowhere else. Descended from the Canada goose, nene are strong flyers but are closely related to a long extinct giant flightless goose from Hawaii Island that was about four times their size. Nene are mostly brown but with black faces and a dark furrow pattern on their long white necks. Their dark feet are only partially webbed, which allows them to swim as well as walk more easily on rugged lava flows. Like most native Hawaiian birds, they were once abundant, but declined sharply by the 1800s due to hunting pressure, habitat loss, and especially by predation from introduced dogs, cats, and mongoose. By the 1950s, their population had declined to only 30 birds. Captive breeding programs in both Hawaii and England may have barely saved these birds from extinction, and continued efforts among state and federal agencies have shown growing success as their population has been steadily rising. Now, with more than 2,000 birds across the state, Nene have been downlisted from endangered to threatened under the Endangered Species Act, but they're still considered the rarest goose in the world. Even so, they're one of the few success stories of a native Hawaiian bird rebounding from the brink of extinction. You can now occasionally hear the honking calls of the Nene on most main Hawaiian islands, especially if you're near ponds or grassy fields. Nene are mentioned in the Kumulipo as being guardian spirits of the land, and they are seen symbolically as a joining force between the mountains and the coast, probably due to their Malka to Makai movements in search of fresh grasses, herbs, and fruits. They have an unusually long breeding season that may last from fall through winter, the opposite of when most other Hawaiian birds choose to breed. Like other Hawaiian birds, though, Nene may be named from one of the many sounds they make. In this case, the low, murmuring call that sounds like its name. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Our final segment today throws the light on caretakers for the greatest generation. Many of our veterans paid a high price for their service, and their children and grandchildren step up to provide care. That's what the film Sky Blossom documents. The show makes its uh, broadcast debut on PBS Hawaii tomorrow. In advance of, of that, a webinar takes place this afternoon. Ilihia Johnson is on the panel, along with PBS Hawaii's Ron Mizutani, to talk about their personal experiences. Sky Blossom is a reference to those members of the military in the heat of battle looking up to the sky and seeing the paratroopers dropping down to provide that support, to provide that backup. And so in the film, which talks about veteran caregivers, they're compared to those sky blossoms that help coming in to support our veterans. Across the nation, there are five and a half million military and veteran caregivers and their their spouses, their parents, their certainly children, family members, loved ones um, who care for our veterans, whether they're, they're wounded or ill or you know, whether the injuries were inflicted during service or after service or those kinds of chronic conditions from things they were exposed to in service. In Hawaii, it's over 100 and 
12,000 veterans right here. And you have your own personal experience taking care of a loved one. I do. So my dad, Anthony, his classmates at Campbell High School 65 called him Ants. Thousands of customers of Hilo Ace Hardware over the years called him Tony. He was a Vietnam vet. He was in Vietnam in the Army from 66 to 68. And he, he hit it pretty well for most of my life. A lot of it kind of unpacked itself after the death of my mom and brother and grandma and kind of, you know, a short sequence of time. And it unearthed a lot of trauma that he had been kind of holding in. So it, it was definitely an experience to go through that with him, reconnecting with some of that, dealing with a lot of that and accessing some of the resources that we did to, to work through it. So I was 19 when my mother passed. She was his primary caretaker. So I got that responsibility as well as the stuff that came up because now those experiences had uh, been unpacked. And so I'm sure a lot of your friends weren't doing what you were doing, taking care of your dad, and it, and you had to grow up fast. I did. And, you know, Catherine, you and I talked, and this is something you've experienced, and thousands of people across Hawaii have experienced this as well, uh, whether at an early age like me, a little bit later, a lot later. It really varies, but certainly my 20s were an adventure trying to balance, you know, school and the social life, but certainly that responsibility to care for my dad as well as my brother who had an intellectual disability. Um, so it, it's something that's not foreign to many kama'aina. We yeah. don't just leave our kupuna. We don't just leave people who need help to their own devices. We go, we help, we support. Yes, in, in, in my case, yeah, my father was a vet, and he was uh, uh, being treated at Tripler. Uh, and you just uh, dug in deep. You know, it had to be done. You stepped up, and you just did it. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I referenced Hawaii as kind of an example where there's no question that we're going to take care of those who need it. But going back to the film, Sky Blossom looks at five families across the nation, including one family from Kauai. And they've all put caring for their veteran ahead of their own needs and made that the centerpiece of their families. And so I guess, you know, the whole idea is that uh, the film will uh, make it broadcast debut on uh, PBS Hawaii this week. And there will be other screenings and there will be a webinar so that people can talk about, you know, what are the resources out there in the community to help these caregivers? Absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. So um, on Thursday, on Veterans Day, PBS Hawaii is going to air this film. Sky Blossom at 8.30 p.m. as part of a whole day of programming around honoring our veterans. At 7.30, they're going to do a special edition of Insight on veterans' issues, and there are different shows that will follow the film as well. Um, and you can learn more about all of that at pbshawaii.org slash honoring-our-veterans. I did happen to look at the website, and I know PBS uh, CEO Ron Mizutani, he also has a personal story about caring for his dad. He does, and, um, you know, it's reflected in his management of the station, taking the time, taking the space to honor our veterans in this way on Thursday. So mahalo nui to you, Ron. And so tell us about the webinars that are happening. The webinar is uh, it's titled Lessons in Military and Civilian Caregiving. It's on Wednesday, November 10th, uh, 3.30, and that's presented by AARP Hawaii. So mahalo to all the good folks at AARP. who, And they also have a bunch of resources that we can talk about a little later. But the webinar is going to feature uh, Richard Louie. He's a NBC News, MSNBC anchor. He's a caregiver himself. And, and he was the filmmaker who created Sky Blossom to tell that story about America's next greatest generation, the children of 
these vets who who need the caregiving. Ron Mizutani from PBS, he's going to be joining us on the panel. Komaile Kapanui is a caregiver from Kauai who was featured in the film. She and her brother cared for their grandpa, Bobby Navai, army vet, had Alzheimer's and dementia. He recently passed away, but Kamila is going to be joining us to talk about that caregiving journey. And uh, we'll also have a couple other voices from the Hawaii caregiving community. So that's an hour-long webinar. Uh, you can watch it at skyblossom.com or on the AARP Hawaii Facebook page. And, you know, uh, when I was caring for my dad, you know, I had to learn about the VA health care system. That was a maze. But, you know, a lot of vets, you know, and maybe families don't know to tap the VA. It's a lot to navigate, certainly. And the, the services they provide abroad, you know, every veteran has their own challenges. Just think about the veterans living today served in conflict stretching back to World War II all the way to, you know, Afghanistan. And you think about the kinds of challenges that they were presented with during their service. For my dad and his generation, it was Agent Orange in Vietnam and the health impacts of that. For more recent veterans, you know, improvised explosive devices, burn pits, things like this cause such a myriad of issues. There's so much to navigate. And so um, research by AARP shows that only 21% of veterans in Hawaii use the VA for their health care. It's a resource that's available to them, but certainly it's a lot to navigate. For the past few months, I've been serving as Hawaii's representative in the Elizabeth Dole Foundation's Caregiver Fellow Program. I'm not the first from Hawaii, and certainly alumni of the Fellow Program still remain active in our community now, but I'm part of the class of 2021. And I think my two big takeaways, one is that you're not alone in this. There are so many caregivers out there, folks you would never know. Um, Catherine, you're a great example. Ron Mizutani, another example. Folks we interact with personally or professionally, and we have no idea that they've taken on this burden of caring for a loved one who's a veteran or otherwise needs caregiving. Um, so that was one big takeaway. Another one is, you know, there's such a range. You watch a film like Sky Blossom and you see, you know, veterans fighting super aggressive cancers. You see veterans without the use of multiple limbs for various reasons. And it's easy to think, you know what? My journey has not been that bad. My journey has not been that challenging. But the challenges of others shouldn't take away from the fact that every caregiver has made that commitment to care for their person, for better, for worse, through those tough times. Sometimes it's a spouse, sometimes it's children, sometimes it's other relatives. The Elizabeth Dole Foundation is also working on an exciting project to better support what they're calling hidden helpers for the children of the caregivers. So in my case, that would be my three-year-old daughter who right now is sitting in her bedroom with my dad and they're having a grand old time playing Barbies. <laughs> so it's, I think those have been the lessons, you know, don't compare your journey to anyone else's. They're all an incredible sacrifice and a commitment that we've made. Um, and maybe finally, you know, there are resources out there. There's help out there. The veterans who we care for made a commitment to serve the people of this nation. And caregivers are a big part of delivering on the promise that the nation made to them to care for them. And the support's out there. You know, I have a, I have a couple of... Um, websites I'd just like to leave you with. We talked about PBS Hawaii and their programming. AARP, who's presenting the, the screening as well as the webinar this week, aarp.org slash caregivers. Has a lot of resources for family caregivers, veteran or not. And aarp.org slash veterans 
have some resources more specific to caring for veterans. And then finally, hiddenheroes.org is the website of the Elizabeth Dole Foundation's Hidden Heroes campaign, which looks to support those veteran caregivers. The hidden heroes who support our much more visible heroes are veterans. Senator Elizabeth Dole established the foundation in 2012 after an experience she had caring for her husband, Senator right. Bob Dole. Senator Bob Dole, he was, yeah, he but, was in Walter Reed for 11 months. It's, it's a big initiative in recognition that I put things on hold so that I could care for my dad. What right. does that mean for my child? And what are the ways that my child participates in that caregiving journey, too? Yeah. Um, my three-year-old is super involved, and oftentimes, you know, she's very, she's a very critical part of helping my dad get through the day. And playing Barbies with Grandpa is part of that. Hidden Heroes, we're told, just launched today. And that webinar sponsored by ARP is at 3.30 this afternoon. You can learn more about those resources available for families. And reminder, Sky Blossom plays on PBS Hawaii tomorrow at 8.30 p.m. Johnson says it is well worth watching. This is Sandy Tsukiyama, host of Brazilian Experience on HPR1, every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. I bring the best in bossa nova, favela funk, and all the colors in between from our largest neighbor in South America. But what if you miss a show? Like many of our music programs, you can stream Brazilian Experience on demand. Just head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. We are all pow now, but tomorrow we hear more about the part that Filipino soldiers played in the war and the ongoing fight to right past wrongs. Got a veteran story you'd like to share with us? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.